0: There are steelhead fish and the steelhead, a really big boat, with, we should note, a pretty robust horn. The fish don't make much noise at all. Anyway, we've got them both.
1: It's a double rainbow all
0: the way. This week on the Up North Lowdown from Interlaken Public Radio. I'm Ed Ronco. The steelhead, also known as the rainbow trout, is actually a really pretty fish. It's got speckled fins and spots on top, almost like freckles, and this band down the middle of its body from head to tail with shades of blue and purple and pink, hence the rainbow. (laughs) It's so beautiful! (laughs) This week, Michigan's Natural Resources Commission weighed a proposal to limit the number of steelhead that anglers can harvest in certain rivers from three fish to just one. And inside the fishing world, there has been a heated debate about whether it is the right decision and who it benefits. IPR's Ellie Katz explains.
1: Steelhead season started a month ago, and almost every day since, Ed McCoy has been out on the Manistee River trying to get a fish to grab a line.
2: When they grab it, they're usually grabbing it pretty pretty aggressively, and usually they hook themselves, so lines immediately peeling off the drag.
1: McCoy has been a river guide for over 20 years, And what he's describing is precisely why people love fishing steelhead on Michigan's cold streams. They're aggressive, they fight like crazy, and they're beautiful fish. But McCoy says the fishery that he and thousands of others love and rely on is at risk. And as president of the Michigan River Guides Association, he's pushing hard for the state to lower bag limits on steelhead. McCoy says the fish are in decline because of overfishing.
2: We're still managing this fishery like it is in its prime in the mid-90s, and the early 2000s. We still have the same regulations in place. But yet the fisheries change, right?
1: Right. The steelhead fishery has changed pretty dramatically since its peak. There's far fewer fish than there were 30 years ago. But biologists at the Department of Natural Resources say over-harvesting is not the reason why.
3: Lake Michigan's changed a lot because of invasive species.
1: Jay Wesley is the Lake Michigan Basin Coordinator for the DNR's fisheries division. He says quagga and zebra mussels have lowered the capacity of Lake Michigan, and the steelhead population saw a steep decline in the early 2000s.
3: But it's been relatively flat or stable ever since then. You know, the steelhead numbers are what the lake can produce.
1: He argues that restricting bag limits won't make them come back but it would change one thing.
3: It certainly will provide more fish to catch and release within a within a river. So if that's their strategy, then this may work. Unfortunately, they're saying that the steelhead population is in peril. We dis- disagree with that. We don't have evidence of that at all.
1: But many anglers aren't convinced. There's still a strong perception that Michigan steelhead are overfished and at risk. Surveys have shown lots of support for a one-fish harvest limit among anglers which has been heard by the people who will decide what to do. Dave Nyberg is a natural resources commissioner. He proposed the change, and he says anglers and river guides have noticed more people competing for fewer steelhead on Michigan rivers.
2: What the commission and other fellow commissioners that I've talked to and other stakeholders are concerned about is um, what the commission can do today that will basically be a do-no-harm approach.
1: Anglers who want to harvest will still be able to take a fish. And he says more protections will buy more time for research and river restoration. But Jay Wesley with the DNR says the research is already clear and that this do-no-harm approach still has consequences.
3: Biologically, I agree. This will do no harm. Where the harm is, is socially.
1: He says there will definitely be more fish to catch and release on rivers. But he's worried the change will keep novice anglers away, who on average prefer to keep more fish.
3: You know, that should be fine to do because, you know, the population can withstand harvest. It is now.
1: The DNR is concerned lower bag limits will harm their license sales, which is what funds fisheries conservation and management. And Wesley worries all of this might harm something else, too, people's trust in publicly funded research.
3: We think we have some really nice data here suggesting that there's no issue, and then people are turning that around and saying there is an issue. I just hope that we have the trust of our public to make changes when they're really necessary.
1: River guide Ed McCoy says those changes are really necessary, and he knows one thing for certain. Steelhead fishing on the Manistee River just isn't the same anymore.
4: I don't need to catch
2: the most fish on the river every day. That is not my goal or objective. But I am trying to sell an experience to somebody that maybe they only can have once or twice a year. And I want it to be the best that it possibly can. But I also can't catch what's not there. And that's the bottom line.
1: And he says trying something new is worth a shot.
0: IPR's Ellie Katz with that story. The state's Natural Resources Commission did make that vote this week, unanimously deciding to cut the daily bag limit on steelhead to only one fish on more than a dozen Michigan streams. On two other rivers, the Rogue and the Muskegon, it is five fish. The new limit takes effect April 1st. No joke. When we come back, a totally different kind of steelhead. The boat was built at the kind of the initiation of the salmon program in the Great Lakes. The lowdown returns in a moment.
1: Did you know you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping?
0: We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do
3: through our habits.
1: NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Tom Wall uses plants to make music. He hooks them up to a device that captures electric impulses, which then get turned into musical notes. Much like you talk to a person that doesn't know your language, right? You can still understand the basic reactions and like the excitement of somebody or the, the melancholy or the downness. Tom thinks the plants talk to us through the music. But can they really? Find out next time on Points North. That episode of Points North is now available. You can listen to it wherever you're hearing this podcast.
0: Welcome back to the Up North Lowdown. I'm Ed Ronco. Before the break, we were telling you about the Fish Steelhead. It is also the name of the state of Michigan's first research vessel. Steelhead the boat is calling it a career after working Lake Michigan waters since 1968 from its home port in Charlevoix. IPR's Michael Livingston explored the Steelhead and learned about the important discoveries the old boat uncovered over all those years. And we thought we would listen back to his visit in this story from July.
2: It's a warm, hazy afternoon in the Elk Rapids Harbor. The smoky weather makes it so the sky and Lake Michigan blend into each other on the horizon. Sticking out like a sore thumb among all the yachts and pontoons is the bruised Royal Blue Hull of the steelhead. The Department of Natural Resources is the agency that owns the boat. Staff are giving tours to passerbys as part of the Elk Rapids Fishing Expo, families climb on board to meet the crew and check out some pretty neat fishing gadgets.
4: You ready to drive that? Mm-hmm. Nice, sir. <laughs>
2: That's David Clapp, showing a family around the captain's quarters. He manages the Charlevoix Fisheries Research Station, but used to be a biologist aboard the steelhead for five years. He says the mission has changed over the vessel's 50-plus years in the water, but its main purpose has always been to survey fish populations. You name it. Rainbow smelt, bloater chubs, walleye. Lake trout, um, yellow perch, whitefish, herring, sturgeon are expanding um, in recent years. You get the point. The data that come off of the boat help inform anglers and commercial fishermen on what's safe to catch. It sailed from its construction port in Escanaba in 1968, just in time to join in on one of the state's most renowned conservation efforts. Imagine heaps of small dead fish washing up on the beaches across the state that's what it was like before the alewife population was controlled by introducing millions of Chinook and Coho salmon in 1966.
4: The boat was built at the kind of the initiation of the salmon program in the Great Lakes. So salmon were introduced to help control alewives and to create a sport fishery. And and the boat and the research stations actually around the Great Lakes were all established about that time.
2: If the steelhead was an army general, participating in the salmon stocking program would be just one of its many medals. It's been used to control invasive species, research fish diseases, break sheets of ice, and assist the U.S. Coast Guard in search and rescue operations. This boat has been through a lot, and so has its five-person crew. These guys can expect to be out on the lake for days and weeks at a time. The living quarters are below deck, just a couple of bunk beds, a stove, microwave, and a shelf full of snacks.
4: It's tight, you know, and you can't, uh, it's hard to have like one person who wants to go to bed at eight o'clock and one who stays up till midnight or something. So you gotta kind of respect everybody's, what they want to do and all that, but. uh, Yeah, it's like living in a college dorm. Yep, exactly, yep, (laughs) yep.
2: But tight quarters don't bother a guy like Chris Snyder. He's done nine summers aboard the Steelhead and says he's gotten some crazy stories out of it. Most revolve around severe weather, like the thunderstorms they were caught in last year. It just seemed to keep going and going and getting
4: worse and worse. And there was water coming in through the windows. We decided we better turn around after that. Rolling for everything, everything fell off every shelf, I think. So that was a little interesting. Every once in a while feels a a little bit like Deadliest Catch.
2: (laughs) So after more than a few bad storms, the Steelhead is finally gearing up for retirement. The crew says replacing parts in the 1960s motor has become increasingly difficult. A new boat called the Steelhead 2, is in the works with updated technology thanks to $4 million from the state. It'll have an expanded lab, new navigation technology, and more environmentally friendly engines. The crew says they're looking forward to the new boat, but for Captain Pat O'Neill, it comes with some conflicting feelings. He served on the Steelhead for over a decade and became captain three years ago. He knows this boat port to starboard. Believe it or not, you're on a boat long enough, you know a a different pitch sound of an engine and your brain triggers to like, okay, I gotta go look into that. Sometimes when he looks at old pictures, he can feel the history. Just seeing some of the guys that were on the boat that I have so much respect for that have now retired um, is an amazing thing And, and, and we carry a lot of pride with that. We don't know what will happen to the steelhead yet, it could end up in a surplus auction or another organization will inherit it. Captain Pat says whatever is next, the Steelhead has certainly accomplished its goal. As we know, the Great Lakes have changed dramatically since this boat started. But for, for us to be a part of this uh, step in life is, is a big deal. And all I can ask is that the next boat is half as good as this boat. The Steelhead 2 will likely be completed in 2024.
0: IPR's Michael Livingston aboard the research vessel Steelhead this past July. Since we're on the topic of boats and ships, it is important to note one more thing this week. November 10th was the anniversary of the sinking of the freighter Edmund Fitzgerald in Lake Superior back in 1975. This is, of course, one of the most famous stories from the famously dangerous lake in a famously dangerous month. I will never forget my elementary school music teacher, Tess Hoffman, having us all sing the Gordon Lightfoot song in fifth grade, all seven verses, maybe a little heavy for ten-year-olds, but a piece of Michigan history, and one that I've never forgotten ever since that concert.
3: The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down At the big lake they call Gitchagooey the lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy.
0: Okay, let's find out what else is news in Michigan. We'll start close to home. Traverse City voters chose a new mayor. Incumbent Richard Lewis decided not to run for re-election. Longtime City Commissioner Amy Shamro won the job over Tom Mayer. TC voters also approved a measure that moves ambulance service back under city control and away from a private contractor. And they gave overwhelming approval to expanding the Brown Bridge quiet area. Voters gave the green light to spend more than $745,000 out of a trust fund to acquire a combined 528 acres southeast of the city. Tuesday's local elections also included mixed results for school districts. In Manton, voters said yes to a new band room and improved athletic facilities. In Glen Lake, though, the community said no to school upgrades, including air conditioning. And what to do with a vacant lot in Charlevoix? The ballot there had two questions. Should it be housing or a park? Voters said no. They rejected both options. So for now, it will remain unused. It was one year ago, in a different election, that Michigan voters decisively passed Proposal 3, which enshrines abortion rights in the state constitution. This week, abortion rights opponents said they've filed a federal lawsuit against the amendment. They claim it violates the U.S. Constitution, including the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause and the First Amendment by interfering, they say, with the free exercise of religion. The Michigan Senate approved a bill giving state regulators the final say in approving wind and solar projects. This is very controversial and is a response to pushback from local governments against renewable energy projects. Supporters say the bills still let local governments have a say by giving them first crack at wind and solar approval, some 120 days to evaluate... But Harbor Springs Republican Senator John DeMoos says local governments would not have any meaningful way to block a project, calling the type of community involvement presented in the bill, quote, pretend. It could get tougher to become a sheriff, in case you were planning on that. State lawmakers are considering a bill that would require stronger resumes for the job. Right now, to run for that office, you only need to prove residency in the county where you're running and voter eligibility, too. This bill in the House would mean sheriffs need to be licensed law enforcement or experienced corrections officers. So if you're not and you want the gig, you've got a little work to do. All right, before we go, I have a favor to ask you. I want to know what you are thankful for. Make a recording where you introduce yourself, tell us where you're from, and what good things in your life you're feeling some gratitude for. Once you've made that recording, email it to IPR at interlaken.org. We will play some of them in our Thanksgiving weekend episode. And thanks in advance. We're thankful for you doing this. That's it for the Up North Lowdown this week. I'm Ed Ronco. Our producer is Max Copeland. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. And we make the Up North Lowdown at Interlaken Public Radio. Contributions this week came from Ellie Katz and Michael Livingston. And speaking of Michael, he just finished working on the latest episode of points north it is out now and it is about generating music from the electrical signals in plants if you have not heard this podcast yet it is fantastic you have to listen to this episode so we are going to tantalize you by leaving you with a song this week composed by this tree in copemish that's right a tree all right y'all ready for this
4: the tree it'll <laughs> respond so sometimes it won't play because you touched it so we got so I
2: it. accidentally just grazed the tree <laughs> Yep. Indeed.
4: it really just depends you know it seems it to like you it doesn't know you you're right we've got a relationship because we've been playing music together before that's me like holding the, the plant's branch like it's, it's a hand or something right now, you know?
2: That's insane.
4: Some kind of energy exchange that they know what you're doing, when you're doing it, before you do it in action. Like they know your thoughts before your actions. Uh, There's definitely more going on here than I am understanding, I'll say that.
0: Brown, and I hope you'll join me this week for game music inspired by the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. We'll hear sounds of lutes, recorders, vials, and voices that take us to places far away through the sounds of long ago. It's an exploration of early music in video games this week on gameplay. You can stream full episodes of gameplay on demand and view playlists at Gameplayshow.org.